our brother is Ted Farah, who's agreed to speak. And he asked that we would read from the 68th Psalm. Ted Farah. Brothers and sisters, rather than have me give you a big lecture tonight, what I propose to do is to conduct a, a kind of a Sunday school class. So don't be surprised if I ask you to read, and don't say, I haven't got a Bible, I haven't got it open, I, I can't find Habakkuk. Uh, all these excuses because I may pin you to read at any time without warning. Now the subject um, tonight is the, the two phases of Christ's advent. Now the usual concept that people have, I think, with respect to the second coming of Christ is something like this. They read in the book of Acts that they were standing there and Christ was taken up into heaven from the Mount of Olives, disappeared in a cloud, and the angel said, He shall so come in like manner as ye have seen him go. So they visualize that at some time, at God's appointment, Christ will descend in like manner, come through the clouds and come down. His feet will touch the Mount of Olives. Every eye shall see him. The Mount of Olives uh, slipped in two. And uh, Christ is now here. Uh, the dead are raised and the Jews recognize Jesus as the Messiah and the kingdom of God is ready to proceed. The only trouble is there's a bit of a, a problem with that. And that is that in 1 Thessalonians 5 and 2, as you very well know, the advent of Christ is described as that of the coming of a thief. Now, a thief isn't in the, in the way of every eye seeing him and everybody. If a thief wants into your house, he waits till there's a very a good opportunity so that nobody will see him. On the other hand, if you look at, at say, Matthew, the 24th chapter, uh, around about verse 27, we read that um, then shall appear the sign of the Son of Man in heaven, and they shall see the Son of Man coming in the clouds of heaven with power and great glory, and so forth. So this looks like a, a, a worldwide event. So there's a contradiction. It seems when you read part of the Bible that he comes as a thief in the night, surreptitiously, quietly, without any fanfare or any... Um, obvious um, nationwide uh, television cameras to be there to, to see him. On the other hand, um, there is quite a bit of evidence to show that uh, it is a public and worldwide event where a lot of people seem to be able to see what's going on. So somehow or other we have to reconcile these two, um, these two apparent contradictions and try and get sort of a uh, some, you might say some uh, sequence out of what the Bible has to say. Now they say the, the mark of a good speaker is uh, the first thing he does is tell him what he's going to tell him. Is this right, Brother Smith? You're a public speaker. Uh, next thing is uh, tell him, tell him what you're going to tell him. Tell him. And the third thing is to tell them what you've told them. Then they're supposed to get the message. So what I, what I will now do is tell you what I'm going to tell you first. And then, then I'll tell you. So what I'm going to tell you is this. And uh, that is how to reconcile this apparent contradiction. 
It appears to me that the thief-like advent is first. And the thief-like advent occurs on what we shall call Resurrection Day. That is the day that Christ raises the dead and um, brings them along with the quick to the judgment seat of Christ. This advent is unseen. It's surreptitious. It is, it is not a public affair. It is like a thief comes. The quick and the dead are then taken to Sinai, Mount Sinai, where the judgment seat of Christ takes place. And people will say, well, now that El Al and all these aircraft are, are flying all over the Sinai and military craft, uh, everybody would know that uh, there's a big new goings-on in the Mount Sinai area, and, and television would be there to see what it's all about. Well, they forget that the eyes of the world can very well be holdened as they were on the way to Emmaus, and there would be nobody know anything about any, any events which were taking place on Mount Sinai. Then it would appear to me that the marriage supper of the Lamb takes place there, and the constitution of the kingdom of God in its initial form is set up. Then, having completed this on Mount Sinai, the multitudinous Christ, which is described in the Bible in many ways, one of them is the rainbowed angel, and so forth, marches north in a northerly direction through the Sinai wilderness and desert to the city of Jerusalem. And it is at that point that his feet stand upon the Mount of Olives, and the Mount of Olives cleaves in the middle, and every eye sees him, and they also that pierced him. Now that's the, uh, you might say, the general uh, idea of what we have in mind. So in order to um, substantiate what we said, we will now um, go through some really an abundance, brothers and sisters, of Scripture, in my opinion. Far too much Scripture to just uh, throw it aside and say, well, uh, this fellow is putting together a few verses and making a case. It's, it's much more abundant than that. And it seems to me that what we have just said uh, has a, a really a great deal of Scripture to support it, which we will now look at, as time permits, in some detail. In order to um, see uh, the geography of what we're talking about, you all know that Mount Sinai is a mountain near the base of this uh, peninsula, the Sinai Peninsula, which is between the Red Sea and the Gulf of Aqaba. This is a wilderness area. Uh, this is the Dead Sea. This is the Sea of Galilee. This is the Jordan River, the city of Jerusalem being up here. So the, these are the two focal points that we are going to talk about uh, tonight. The city of Jerusalem on the one hand and the city or the uh, mountain of Sinai on the other. Now the first uh, chapter we want to look at is in Deuteronomy the 33rd. Now I told you I was going to ask somebody to read and the person I'm going to ask is uh, uh, Laura. So it's Deuteronomy 33 and 2. Can you read that now, please? And it said, The Lord came to Sinai and rose up from the fear of him and shot 
we're paying all that strict attention to it as to its import with respect to what we're talking tonight. And yet the 68th Psalm is an abundant, um, is, is abundantly full of messages pertaining to this very thing we're talking about, namely the, the coming of Christ to Sinai and his proceeding in an orderly way to Jerusalem. The first verse I want to uh, draw your attention to is verse 6, because this gives us the setting that it is in connection with the messianic return of Christ because it is talking about the resurrection of the dead. You wouldn't hardly know that perhaps those bound with chains had reference to those in the grave and that they were going to be released from the grave, the chains were going to be released. But in the translation of the Septuagint, this is what it says. God settles the solitary in a house, leading forth prisoners mightily, even them that dwell in tombs. So that this sixth verse gives us the scenario of the timing of when the 68th Psalm is, is being talked about. Now the next thing in the seventh verse, as you will read on there, you will see that it says, O God, when thou wentest forth before thy people, when thou didst march, now there's the first place the word march appears. There's a march, and the march is Christ and the multitudinous saints marching through the wilderness. Now, as you know, this whole area here is wilderness. And they are depicted as marching through the wilderness when, when the prisoners are released from the tombs. Now, what's it say in verse 8? The earth shook, the heavens also dropped at the presence of God, or Elohim, or mighty ones, or changed ones. Even Sinai itself was moved at the presence of God, the God of Israel. When we come over to verse 16, we have this information given. This is the hill which God desireth to dwell in. What is the hill of the Lord, the holy hill? Well, of course, it's the holy hill of Zion. That's, where, that's the goal, that's the destination of the march where he desires to dwell in. Now I want to look more critically at verse um, 17. And if you want to write this down, it, according to authorities that I have uh, looked up quite extensively, the perhaps more correct translation of the Hebrew would be this. The chariots of God are myriads, even thousands of mighty ones, well, that could also be translated as changed ones. Elohim can be either mighty ones or changed ones, which, which um, indicates, again, the multitudinous nature of those that are involved. Now, instead of the authorized version saying, the Lord is among them, as in Sinai, in the holy place, the, the proper translation is probably more like this. The Lord came from Sinai, into or unto his holy place. And his holy place, of course, is the holy hill of Zion again, the city of Jerusalem. So here is depicted um, 20,000 even myriads of saints, uh, mighty ones who are changed on their way from Sinai to the holy hill of Zion. And again in verse 18, uh, you will remember that when he says, Thou hast ascended on high, thou hast led captivity captive, that the Apostle Paul in Ephesians 4 and 8 uh, applied that verse 
to the resurrection of the dead. Further on, near the end of the, of the uh, say, look at verse 29. This sounds like Isaiah. Because of thy temple at Jerusalem shall kings bring presents unto thee. And then the balance of the, the chapter, princess shall come out of Egypt. Ethiopia shall soon stretch out her hands unto God. Sing unto God, ye kingdoms of the earth, which is messianic and, and kingdom in its application. So this 68 Psalm, which we have dealt with very uh, sketchily and hazily tonight, is certainly messianic and has about four or five very interesting uh, items with respect to the march from the uh, Sinai through the wilderness toward the city of Jerusalem by this multitudinous Christ. Let's look now at one of the prophecies of the New Testament, and that is in the book of Jude. We don't have the, uh, this is in verse 14 of Jude, we don't have the book of Enoch, but since we are reading an inspired record, we know that Enoch must have prophesied, and here's what he said. Enoch also, the seventh from Adam, prophesied of these, saying, Behold, the Lord cometh with ten thousands of his saints to execute judgment upon all and to convince all that are ungodly among them of all their ungodly deeds which they have ungodly committed. Now everybody turn back now, and we're going to have a, a critical look at the book of Habakkuk. The third chapter of Habakkuk, in some respects, perhaps is the most enlightening of all of the information we are given in the prophecies with respect to these two phases of the second coming of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Habakkuk is the book sandwiched between Nahum and Zephaniah. And we're looking at chapter 3. Now, in verse 3 of chapter 3 of Habakkuk, we have God. Now that word in the, in the Hebrew is not Elohim, but the singular, Eloah. And again, according to Dr. Thomas, the proper translation should be Eloah, in the singular, came in from Teman. Now, Teman is right up here. He came in from Teman, and the Holy One from Mount Paran, which is, again, reinforcing what we've already written, Mount Paran down here. So we're in the same general line of march. His glory covered the heavens, the earth was full of his praise. Now, here is the multitudinous Christ, brothers and sisters, on their way up to the city of Jerusalem, uh, passing through these various points which the prophets have mentioned. Now, I think that um, uh, verse 6 is, is, is quite unusual here. I get the impression from reading verse 6 that Christ stands probably on a mountain on his way up with the saints with him, and he measures the earth. He is or sits, stands there and looks over and takes the earth's measure, because the great work before him 
of subduing Babylon the Great and the nations of the earth is now to commence. And so he takes the measure. When you're going to build a building, you take some measurements. Well, he's going to build the kingdom of God. And he takes the measure of the earth. He beheld, it says, and drove asunder the nations. The everlasting mountains were scattered. The perpetual hills did bow. And we know that mountains and hills are symbolic of political and ecclesiastical powers. But as we read further on, we come to verse 12. And we find that the word march again is used. This is the second time we have this word march. Thou didst march through the land in indignation. Thou didst thresh the heathen in anger, for thou wentest forth for the salvation of thy people, even the salvation with thine anointed, or thy Messiah. The word, that word is Mashiach in Hebrew, and it means Messiah. So then we have in verse 14, thou didst strike through with his staves the head of his villages. They came out as a whirlwind to scatter me. Their rejoicing was as to devour the poor secretly. And then it goes on to indicate the net result of this march, beginning of verse 17, of the glories of the kingdom. So while we haven't got time to properly deal with Habakkuk 3, I do want to, I do want to draw it to your attention briefly during this uh, session we have tonight. We now come to um, the book of Isaiah. And the first place I want you to turn to is Isaiah 16, the 16th chapter. Again, we have some very interesting information given to us with respect to the Lord coming from, from uh, Sinai and his march through the wilderness on the way to the city of Jerusalem. The authorized version will we'll ask... Um, Let's see now. Who can we ask? Who's got it there? Hands up. Anybody got it? Hands up. Have you? No. Uh, will you read the first verse, please? Send ye the lamb to the ruler of the land from Selah to the wilderness into the mount of the daughter of Zion. Now, if you want to write this down, most of the translators say that it really should be translated like this. I will send the ruler of the land from Selah, which is another name for Petra, which is the capital now, the ancient kingdom of Edom, we're going to be talking about that in a minute, in the wilderness unto the mount of the daughter of Zion. So this ruler of the land, which is Christ and the multitudinous saints, is going to be sent from Selah, and that's, we'll put that down on the map now, which is up here, Selah. We'll put a bracket for Petra. You're going to be sent from there in the wilderness unto the mount of the daughter of Zion. Then, further on, in the 16th of Isaiah, um, we have the result of what's going to happen, and that is in, in verse 5. He shall set upon it the throne in truth in the tabernacle of David, judging and seeking judgment and hasting righteousness, which is another way of describing the glories of the kingdom when it is set up. We said we were in Isaiah. We now want to turn to the 34th chapter of Isaiah. As you know, Edom is, a, is now the Arab, one of the Arab nations. The Greek word for Edom is Idumea. In other words, when you see the word Idumea in the Bible, 
remember that it is just a, a Hellenized form of the uh, Hebrew for Edom. Now let's have a look at what he says here about what's going to happen in this area where the Arabs apparently are now gathering their forces. They know that something is happening because there's a mysterious army marching from Mount Sinai in an orderly direction and by the time they get up to here, we don't know exactly how long that'll be, uh, the Arabs have mustered their forces and now there's going to be a confrontation between the Arab nations who are worried about this new force which apparently is on the side of Israel and they don't know where it's coming from. So let's have a look now what's happening. First of all, in verse 2 of Isaiah 34, we have it recorded that the indignation of the Lord is upon all nations. Now this is end times, brothers and sisters, when the indignation of the Lord is upon all nations, not just any one or two nations. The whole world is involved. His fury upon all their armies. He hath utterly destroyed them. He hath delivered them to their slaughter. Now look at verse 5 with respect to what's going to happen to the armies of the Arab nations. For my sword shall be bathed in heaven. Behold, it shall come down upon Ijumea and upon the people of my curse to judgment. The sword of the Lord is filled with blood. It is made fat with fatness, with the blood of lambs and goats and the fat of the kidneys of rams. Why? For the Lord hath a sacrifice in Basra. Right here, Basra. And a great slaughter in the land of Ijumea. When is this? Well, look at verse 8 for the answer. When is it? Somebody? Day of the Lord. Yeah? What? Of, what? Give me more. Yeah, give me more. Right. It is the day of the Lord's vengeance and the year of recompenses for the controversy of Zion. So the goal is up here in Zion, which is a, another name, of course, for Jerusalem. Now we come to the famous 63rd chapter of Isaiah. Somebody is asking a question in verse 1. What question are they asking? They're asking this question. Who is this that comes from Edom? Now, Edom, as you know, is here. This whole country in here is Edom or Idumea. So the question is asked, who is this anyway that's coming from Edom? With dyed garments from Basra, which is right here. Who is it anyway that's coming? Because whoever it is, he's glorious in his apparel, traveling in the greatness of his strength. Well, who is it anyway? What's it say who it is? Who does it say it is? Now, who speaks in righteousness? Mighty to say. Only one man that speaks in righteousness, and that's the Lord Jesus Christ and, and the saints that are now with him. So the question is asked, how, how is it that you're led in your apparel and your garments stained with blood and so forth? Well, the, the how is it is because there's been a confrontation between the, the nations who are opposing this march and the multitudinous Christ who are on their way up to the city of Jerusalem. 
Now when we come to verse 4, we have an inkling given as to the time it will take between the judgment seat of Christ and these events we are now dealing with. And I believe it is indicated here uh, in this way, that it says, The day of vengeance is in my heart, and the year of my redeemed is come. Now the redeemed, of course, most of them are in the grave. So if the redeemed, if the year of the redeemed has come, it must mean that they have been raised from the dead, brought to Sinai for judgment, and are now with the multitudinous Christ on their way to the city of Jerusalem. So I would guess that however long the, the uh, judgment seat of Christ is going to last, it can't be more than a year because it says the year of my redeemed has come. It doesn't say the decade of my re redeemed or anything like that. Uh, it says the year of my redeemed. Now our time is going along. I want to next refer to, perhaps um, um, briefly, to one or two other places to show you that this isn't a figment of our imagination. This is in the Bible. In the 35th chapter of Ezekiel, we have exactly the same scenario taking place. Here a prophecy is given against Mount Seir, which is in here. S-E-I-R. You see, these, all these place names are packed right into a very small geographical area there. Uh, Basra, Petrus, Sela, Ijemia. Petrus, Sela, Ijemia, Edom, Seir, Teman, they're all within, uh, you might say, a few miles one of the other. So there's no argument about what, what scenario was taking place. And so the prophecy against, is directed against Mount Seir, which is, of course, Edom, and it goes on to tell us what is going to happen, the desolations, um, in verse 15. So will I do unto thee, thou shalt be desolate, O Mount Seir, and all Ijemea, even all of it, and they shall know that I am the Lord. So there's no argument about who's going to win the battle between the opposing forces of modern Edom, which is the Arab nations, and the multitudinous Christ, because the desolation upon Edom and the slaughter is going to be bathed in blood in Ijemea. We turn now to the 40th chapter of Isaiah. We've all read this 40th chapter, I don't know how many times. Probably many of us know it by heart. And as Brother Floyd said this morning, it's a very fine idea to know as much as you can by heart. When we come to verse 3, we usually think that this verse about the voice that's crying in the wilderness applies to John the Baptist. And indeed it did. But brothers and sisters, I think there's enough evidence in this chapter that it also has an application to the time that is now very shortly to come to pass. Because there is a voice that is crying in the wilderness. This is all wilderness here. The whole Sinai Peninsula is wilderness. What does the voice say? The voice says, Prepare ye the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our Elohim. Now, remember we said there was a first coming when it was surreptitious and quiet, and the second coming is, is public and open. Now here's the opener. Five, verse, The glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it together. So I believe that this 40th chapter has a very strong application in the scenario we are dealing with here now. 
O Zion, that bringeth good tidings, get thee up into the high mountain. O Jerusalem, lift up thy voice. Lift it up. Be not afraid. Behold your God. You see, the, the um, scenario has now changed from one of, of um, non-public appearance to a wide-open public appearance so that every eye shall see him and every tongue shall confess eventually that he is the, indeed the Messiah that we have been looking for. Now lastly, I want to have you look at the second chapter of Joel. chapter of Joel describes a march. Why do we say that? Because it says so in verse 7. Somebody is going to march everyone on his ways. Now there's a special uh, sentence here that tells us something about the people that are doing the marching. And that is also in the seventh verse and it indicates that they are immortal. Now, how do we, why do we say that, these Sunday school scholars? Who, how would anybody read that verse and say, the people who are doing the marching are immortal? Right. They shall not break their ranks. Neither shall one thrust another. They shall walk everyone in his path. And when they fall upon the sword, they shall not be wounded. Now, if you fall on a sword, you're wounded, ladies and gentlemen, very severely. But these people who are doing a march are not wounded, which indicates that they are immortal. They are part of the multitudinous body of Christ which are marching in this direction. Now, we haven't got time to read this whole chapter, but when next time you read it, and if you want to go home and, and, and look it up more carefully than we have been able to do tonight, you will see that this is also a, a um, scenario of this march in a northerly direction because in verse 11 it says, the Lord shall utter his voice before his army, for his camp is very great. He is strong and executeth his word, for the day of the Lord is great and very terrible. Who can abide it? So there, there's no question that the second chapter of Joel, if you'll read it carefully, is also um, a, uh, a description of what's going to happen to those who oppose the multitudinous Christ from the march here in Sinai up to the city of Jerusalem. Now many other passages of Scripture have to do with Moab, the tents of Cushan, um, the uh, Ammon, and so forth, all on their way up when they finally are installed in the city of Jerusalem, the city of the great king. When the army that cannot be wounded by the sword finally arrive in the city of Jerusalem, then there's no question that it will be open, it will be public, and all nations, kindreds, and tongues will know that there's a new force in the earth they didn't know about before. And in that time, his feet shall stand upon the Mount of Olives, and it shall be cleft in twain, and Christ now will be ready to begin the subjugation of the world and bring it under the rule, the righteous rule, of Jesus Christ. You remember in the second psalm, it says, Yet have I set my king upon my holy hill of Zion. And it goes on to say that the, the nations would be foolish to do anything but submit and kiss the sun and so forth. That isn't what they do. 
In June, all they set themselves together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us break their bands asunder and cast away their cards from us. When the call goes forth by the, by the, the multitudinous Christ which are installed in the city of Jerusalem to fear God and give glory to him, you think the Pope and, and uh, Gorbachev and uh, Mubarak and Regan are going to say, oh yes, that's fine. We're, we're all set to uh, knuckle under this Jew in Jerusalem. That's great for us. You think that's what's going to happen? Because if you do, i got another thing for you because that isn't what's going to happen. The Scriptures are crystal clear that when the call goes out to fear God and give glory to Him for the hour of His judgments have come, that He is going to encounter opposition. And I believe that there, that is also in phases. The first phase, you might say, is the inner core, the Arab core, that Christ is going to have to deal with. We've already talked a lot about that tonight. The next core, you might say, is the next circle out, which is up in the north. Here is Russia. Um, down in the south is the, is the Russian satellites like Ethiopia, Yemen, probably Egypt by that time. Uh, Afghanistan, Iran will have joined by that time. And that, I believe, is the invasion of God. I used to believe that when God came down, Christ wasn't here yet, but I don't believe that anymore because of the abundance of Scripture that we just talked about tonight. It seems to me that it's impossible to fit in uh, a God coming down with Christ not here with what is said. So it appears to me that the first phase is the phase of the dealing of Christ and the saints with the immediate Arab nations. And the next phase is the Gaudian phase. And the last phase is the papal phase when the nations of the earth probably will, will say this has now become a, a religious matter. There's a, there's a, a, a new uh, Jewish king in, in Jerusalem that's demanding these things. So they speak or they seek the help and spiritual guidance of the spiritual leader who will then emerge, which is no doubt the Pope of Rome. And the last phase will be the destruction of Babylon and the ten kings, which is described in the book of Revelation beginning at chapter 17. Now, how much time have I got? Not much. I'll, I'll cut it short. Um... When's all this going to take place, brothers and sisters? You know, you can go out and buy a bond on the market today, a 30-year bond, which will mature in uh, 2026. Maybe you can buy a 40-year bond. Have I got my mathematics right, Brother Smith? See, he's nodding his head. He, didn't, he doesn't know what he's talking about. Okay. 2016. Uh, you can uh, hear people saying, where is the promise of his coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were. So where? Is, is this thing going to happen soon? Or is it manana? See, I'll tell you what the trouble is, brothers and sisters. No man in this room or woman believes in their own death. You know that? Yes, I know. We all know we're under uh, Adamic condemnation. And we're going to die. But it isn't going to be tonight. And it isn't going to be tomorrow either, likely. And I've got plans made for August, and I, 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 I'm going to be alive in August for sure. And uh, my daughter's having a baby in, in December, so i got to be here for that. 
You see, we really don't believe in our own death. And yet we all know that sometime or other, we're all going to be placed in that box. Now, just as none of us believe in our own death, none of us really believe in the second coming of Christ either. We know it's coming. Oh, yes, we have tremendous faith that the consummation of all the world's history and everything else is going to be wound up with the second coming of Christ. And yet, it's always later. This is going to be this week or next week or next month or so on. So whenever anybody gets up and talks like I'm talking tonight, people sit there and kind of run their fingers around their collar and say, yeah, I know, sure. We've heard all this before. My grandfather said the coming of Christ was going to take place in his day and somebody else said it was going to take place during World War II and they've all been wrong. And the, and the, the, uh, the implication is they've all been wrong and you're wrong too. Now you know what that is, brothers and sisters? I'll tell you what that is. That is tantamount to saying that the Bible isn't true. That he really will never come. You show me a brother that is always coming along saying, and I've heard this, what are you going to do, Brother Farrer, when the year 1990 comes, Christ isn't here. 1995 comes, Christ isn't here. 2000 comes, Christ isn't here. Are you going to be still getting up like this, or what? Well, let me tell you, brothers and sisters, nothing is more destructive than that kind of talk. Because that, in my view, is tantamount to saying the Bible is not true and he will not come. And we'll all be dead before he's here and when we've all been wrong, we know what we're talking about and we better get down to some other thing like um, trying to help people or send food to Ethiopia or, or, or whatever. And in my view, it's an exceedingly destructive attitude, and I hope if anybody comes along and asks you that question, you spike them very fast for this reason. All things are not continuing as they are, brothers and sisters, because in the 24th chapter of Matthew, he said there would be a sign of the Son of Man in heaven. Now, what is the sign? The sign is the establishment of the nation of Israel. Why do we say that? Because two chapters in the book of Isaiah are devoted to saying that the witness that God has given to mankind for the veracity of his word and the rectitude of what he has to say is the nation of Israel. That's the witness. That's the litmus paper. That's the test we have to find out whether we're on the right track or not. Now, we are no longer walking by faith. When I was a kid the size of this child here, my mother used to tell me about the reestablishment of the Jews. They were planning turnips in Hyper to sell to the ships on the Red Sea and this was a great sign of the, that someday they would come back and I was supposed to believe this. I did believe it too. But you don't have to now tell your kid that we're hoping that someday the Jews will return to this great sign of the Son of Man in Heaven will take place because brothers and sisters it's here. We're now walking by sight not by faith. You can get a hold of somebody and sit down and demonstrate to him from the Scriptures that this thing has come to pass. Now, in the 24th chapter of Matthew, the famous chapter where, he, uh, where the disciples asked him, Tell us what shall be the sign of thy coming and of the end of the world, he proceeds to give them the answer. And the answer, as you very well know, is in verse 32, where he gives them this parable concerning the fig tree, which is a symbol of the nation of Israel. And he says, 
When his branch is yet tender and putteth forth leaves, ye know that summer is nigh. So likewise ye, when ye see all these things, know that it is near even at the doors. Now Luke, in the parallel passage, defines the word it as the kingdom of God is nigh even at the doors. So we are in the position, brothers and sisters, where we saw the blossoming of the fig tree on May the 14th, 1948. Now let me put that down. Here we are, 1948, the blossoming of the fig tree. Now what does he say? He says, This generation shall not pass away until all these things be fulfilled. Now people say, how do you know that when it says this generation, it pertains to the generation that sees the blossoming of the fig tree and not some other generation? Well, that's a good question. I was reading uh, a book on Bible prophecy a couple of years ago, and uh, the fellow was uh, saying that he had consulted a Greek scholar, and there was no question that the Greek said that this generation pertained to the generation that saw the blossoming of the fig tree. Well, there's a brother in England by the name of Brother Lane Harding, and he is a Greek scholar, made his living teaching Greek for the last 40 years. So I wrote to Brother Harding, I Xeroxed off this thing, and I said, listen, give me the facts. Does the Greek say that this generation pertains to the generation that sees the blossoming of the fig tree, or the generation that Jesus was talking to? Which? He wrote immediately back and said, there's no question whatever but what the Greek says that this generation is the generation that sees the blossoming of the fig tree. The next question is, how long is the generation? Well, we know that in the Psalms it says that the Almighty was grieved with this generation of the children of Israel even for 40 years. Now, in confirmation of that, I want you to have a look at the 23rd chapter of Matthew, right at the end. Here we have a very interesting, you might say, confirmation of the length of time we're talking about. As you know, Christ was crucified in, in, from 20, 29 to 30 A.D. Now here's what he says. Talking to the people of that day, he said, verse 35, that upon you may come all the righteous blood shed upon the earth from the blood of righteous Abel unto the blood of Zacharias, son of Barachias, whom ye slew between the temple and the altar. Verily I say unto you, all these things shall come upon this generation. Exactly the same words we find in chapter 24, the next chapter, concerning the blossoming of the fig tree. Now what happened? Well, there 40 years elapsed. And in A.D. 70, of course, we had the blood of righteous Abel vindicated by the destruction of Jerusalem by the Roman uh, general Titus. So exactly one generation elapsed between the, um, the crucifixion of, and the resurrection of Christ and the uh, destruction of Jerusalem in A.D. 70. So we, we know we're on, on firm ground here. Now when we come along applying this generation, he says this generation shall not pass till all be fulfilled, we come down to the year 1988. And, of course, it was May the 14th. Now, I think we are not on, on uh, fictitious ground by any stretch of the imagination by saying that by the time 
May the 14th, 1988 comes, Christ will be here. Because it says this generation, the generation that saw the blossoming of that fig tree, the witness that God has given all nations and tongues and peoples for 2,000 years, this generation shall not pass until all these things be fulfilled. So I am... Uh, I, I do not think we're talking through our hat or making rash statements by saying that we are now in the closing months before the second coming of Christ. Now, funny thing happened up here. If you look in the 24th chapter of Matthew, you remember that he said... Um, when ye see Jerusalem compassed about with armies, flee into the mountains. Get out of the city. Now, a very strange thing happened, brothers and sisters, and that was that two years before the final destruction of the city of Jerusalem, the Roman general Cestius encompassed the city, and he had the inhabitants on their knees, ready to surrender. They were starved out. They had no water. They were in, in the direst straits you could possibly imagine. The rest of the country had been conquered. Only the city of Jerusalem was left to the might of the Roman armies. It was under siege, and they were ready to, to give up. For some reason that the historians have no idea what happened, uh, the, the Roman general Cestius vacated and, and abandoned the siege. He left with his army, leaving the city open. The believers in the city at that point were taken away. They all went to Pella, a town nearby, and escaped. There wasn't one single uh, believer that was left in the city. Every one of them, says Josephus, of the believers of Christ, escaped alive, were taken out, and this happened uh, in the second year before the final destruction of Jerusalem. If the parallel holds... Are we going to be taken out? We've entered the 38th year. Now, we said that the first phase, you remember, was going to be a confrontation between Christ and the Arabs. This is the way it seems to be. On June the 26th, today is what, the 1st of July? Period. Um, Jane's Defense Weekly, which is a weekly magazine put out by the Institute of Strategic Studies in London, England, I guess it's probably the most authoritative magazine of its type in the world, said that Syria was planning a campaign to seize the Golan Heights. In a month ago, the New York Post had the whole front page devoted to it, and the headline was, Syria Gears for War with Israel. And then it said that they were assembling the might of upwards of 4,000 tanks, plus rockets, plus aircraft cover, to uh, seize the Golan Heights. And the idea was that they would, have, they would seize the Golan Heights uh, quickly, uh, call the United Nations in to stop the war. They would have a limited war and they'd have what they want, namely the Golan Heights, uh, as their first stage to uh, uh, defeat Israel. 
However, last week in the Jerusalem Post, the Prime Minister of Israel said, and he warned Syria, look, if you have any idea about a limited war, forget it. Because we are the ones who are going to dictate how this war that you fellows are preparing is going to be fought. So it seems to me that the final stages of the scenario is now being set. And I would guess, if I were making some guesswork, that one of these days Syria will attack Israel. And they probably will blow up some cities or towns and maybe even a school filled with children. And my prediction is if that happens, that the zealots of Israel will blow up the Mosque of Omar. You see, in a sense, the city of Jerusalem is still being trodden down of the Gentiles because that mosque is a Gentile mosque and it's on the holy place that, that uh, Christ is going to come to, the sanctuary. The, the mountain of God, Mount Moriah, is there and it's still being occupied by a Gentile power. Now, I believe that uh, on the day of resurrection, the same day that that mosque is blown up will be the day of resurrection when Christ comes quietly and the dead are raised and the quick are taken. And I believe that the reason that the, the confrontation takes place with the Arabs is that this blowing up of this holy site of the Islamic religion will well the whole Arab uh, and Islamic population of the world against Israel to form the first phase. That is why Christ has to deal in his first phase with the Arab and Islamic nations. The second phase will be the Gogian, and the third phase will be the um, papal and Babylonian phase when the whole earth will eventually be brought into subjection to the multitudinous Christ and and our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So we can say, brothers and sisters, that this is no time to sit by in an armchair as if you're some kind of a big expert and say, where is the promise of His coming? Since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were. This is no time to flag and fail. This is the time when we're on the brink of the very thing that our forefathers and ourselves and our, and our parents and, and all of our faith have looked for, for for all these years. And for brethren to come along now at this point of time and tell us that where is the promise of His coming? What are you going to do if He isn't here by the year 2000? How are you going to feel then? Is in my view blasphemous. We've been given the sign of the Son of Man from heaven, the establishment of the nation of Israel, the blossoming. And now we're at the, at the very end of the 40-year term when this coming of Christ will take place. This is no time to flag and fail or or fear and falter. This is a time to lift up our heads for our redemption draw. Amen.